Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill, all of you who have joined us here live, those of you who are watching us online, and those of you who are watching us in the Cross Point Center, thank you for joining us this morning. It is a pleasure and a joy to have all of you here. Now, before we get started this morning, I want to give you just a couple of pieces of program noting that's going to be taking place. We've been in the Book of Romans since September. And we've been plugging along hard. We're coming to the end of chapter 6 today. Next week, we'll be finished up chapter 7. But in December, we're going to take five weeks off. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a study, a series on Christmas called The King is Coming. We're going to launch on December the 3rd. It's going to bring us all the way to December the 24th, which Christmas Eve falls on the 24th this year. I don't know if you know that. But um, (laughs) we are going to have Christmas Eve services here on Sunday mornings, our regular service times. But we're going to have some special elements going on. So you're going to have to make sure that you're going to register for those. So we'll give you that information in the days ahead. And then on the 31st, which is New Year's Eve, we are going to have an incredible morning of praise and worship and celebration and prayer and the Lord's Supper together on the 31st. So you're not going to want to miss that as well. And that's going to be coming and we'll be giving you the information up to that point. If you're a guest here this morning, we're glad that you're here. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as the senior pastor here at Scotts Hill. And we are in the book of Romans. We've been doing this stuff. So take your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 15 today. Or you can follow along on the screen or you can look in your devices. But we have been plogging along right through the book of Romans, taking section by section by section. And from chapter 5, verse 12 on, the Apostle Paul has been telling us the importance of free grace That free grace is God's unmerited favor. It's given to us by his sovereign choice. We can't earn it. We don't do anything to deserve it. It's just simply a matter of his kindness and his goodness where he pours his grace out on us. But we live in a world and in a life where grace is kind of a difficult concept to hang on to. So what do we do? We often um, poison free grace with what we call cheap grace. And last week, I drew you a graph that showed you the difference between um, free grace and cheap grace. And on cheap grace, there are two extremes on a continuum. First, over here on this side is legalism, which are the grace killers. They kill grace. And the reason they make free grace cheap is they want to add to free grace. Oh, you got to follow this rule. You got to follow this list. And what they do is they add to it, so now it is no longer free It is earned. These are grace killers. But then on the other side is liberalism that says, I can do whatever I want and presume upon the grace of God. I can live any way that I want. God is good. He's a kind, gracious love. I I don't have any moral boundaries. I don't have any constraints. I live how I want to. And because God is so loving, I can presume on his grace. These are grace abusers. In the early church, these were called Judaizers. They were always adding. 
Then over here called the antinomians, they were always taking away. And what they were doing was presuming that God's grace was always going to be good. Last week, the apostle Paul dealt with these in the first part of chapter six. And when he asked the question, shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? He's speaking about people who were living a habitual lifestyle of sin with no restraints, no boundaries, and just saying that I can presume on the grace of God. I can live any way that I want to. And the Apostle Paul tells us what we looked at last week, there is no way possible that a person can live like a sinful person and ever expect to be covered by the grace of God. We're living in a culture today that screams that. Live however you want. Embrace whatever you want. Have no morals, no values. God is good. In the end, it'll work out. And that's a lie. And we see this all around us. So the Apostle Paul last week, in the first part of chapter 6, is dealing with these people who are abusing grace. Now we come to the second part of chapter 6. He is still dealing with some people who have the tendency to abuse his grace. But instead of talking about non-believers in the second part of chapter six, he is now talking to the church. He's talking to people who are believers. And we know that these people are believers. We know that they have been redeemed. We know that they have been crucified with Christ. We know that they have been raised back to life because in verse 17, the apostle Paul tells us this. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So he's speaking to a group of people who are believers. Now, here's the difference. In chapter 6, verse 1, he asked one question. Chapter 6, verse 15, he asked another question. And the questions seem similar, but they're different. In chapter 6, verse 1, he's asking the question about habitual sin. In chapter 6, verse 15, he's asking the question about occasional sin. And this is how he puts it. Chapter 6, verse 1, let me remind you. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Here he's got continue in sin. This is present active indicative in the Greek, which means it's an ongoing action. It's a habitual lifestyle. Can a person live a habitual lifestyle of sin and still be covered by the grace of God? He says, by no means. Here he's speaking to a group of people who are lost, but they're abusing the grace of God. But then in chapter six, verse 15, notice the difference. What then are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. Sounds the same, but it's different structurally. Where the verse one was present active intense, keep on sending. This is in the aorist tense, which an aorist tense means it's a one-time action at one time and one place. In other words, this is a person who has an occasional sin in their life. This is a person who has an occasional weakness or temptation that they give into. This is a person that's asking the question, is it okay for a Christian to have this sin occasionally and not be concerned with it because we are covered by the grace of God? So where one was dealing with habitual sin, He's dealing with Christians in this point saying, is it okay to just have occasional sin? 
Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. Paul is not expecting us to be sinless in our perfection. He's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about us sinning less, not being sinless. And there is this mindset among believers, even today, that believe that I can be a part of occasional sin and I can still presume on the grace of God. I know that's a sin. I know it offends God, but come on, it's a little sin. It's not that serious of a thing. I'm not like those people over there who are rejecting Christ. I believe in Christ, but I just got this one little area of my life that I want to hang on to. Surely God's grace is enough to cover for that. It is, but the attitude of having that grieves the heart of the Father. And so this whole concept is, is it okay? How does Paul answer it? Here's what he says. By no means. It is not okay. It is not okay for a Christian to have this mindset. Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. How many of you ever heard that? How many of you ever used that? Now, that's a good statement. We are sinners saved by grace. But when I put the emphasis on my sin rather than the grace of God, then I begin to practice this occasional lifestyle of sin and I can abuse the grace of God. Paul says, certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. Not just no, but heck no. You cannot do that. Why is Paul so bent on the Christian not just being consumed with occasional sin? Because he understands the nature of sin. And here's what I'm going to do today. I want us to see from this passage why just occasional sin in our life is something that grieves the heart of God and can bring destruction even to our lives as believers. Are we covered by the grace of God? Yes, but no child of God should want to openly sin and presume that God's grace is going to cover them. Why? Because of a grace-filled life in Jesus, I should have a love relationship with him where I don't want to sin. But I do. But what do I do with it? So let me give you some reasons. The Apostle Paul gives us the nature of sin. Number one, why should we not do it? All sin is idolatrous worship of yourself. All sin is the idolatrous worship of myself. Every sin is that. I want you to think about it. Every sin we commit is because something we want for ourselves. Or we want some benefit for. What is the middle letter of the word sin? I. We're always right in the center of it. It's been in the beginning. It was in the Garden of Eden. And we see it there where Adam and Eve were in the garden. God gave Adam the command not to eat of, uh, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the other trees he can eat. Eve comes along. They're walking along. She gets tempted by Satan. Satan begins to question the, word, the heart of God. Did God really say And then he said, no, God did not say that you would die. Then he tricks her and says, oh, God knows. In the day that you eat of it, you will be just like him, knowing good and evil. In 1 John 2, verse 16, John tells us that the devil has always had the same mode of operation. He wants to tempt us by the lust of our flesh, by the lust of our eyes, and by the boastful pride of life. All three of those were present in the garden. Here's what Moses records in Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make her wise, 
the boastful pride of life. She took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, was with her, and he ate. And what happens? He lured them away by their own lust. The same thing happened when Jesus was in the wilderness. When he was being tempted by Satan, what did he do? He used the same mode of operation on Jesus. He said, if you're really the son of God, take that stone and turn it into bread, the lust of the flesh. If you're really the son of God, here are all the kingdoms of the world. Look what I have for you, the lust of the eyes. He says, if you're really the king of God, the son of God, throw yourself from a pinnacle and all these people will worship you. The boastful pride of life. And that's the exact same mode that the enemy uses for you and me today. And here's the problem with occasional sin. Even the smallest sin is always my attempt to usurp God from his throne and put me there. And it's always the idolatrous worship of myself. It always is. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I want to call the shots. I want to have the pleasure. I want to be the one who is God. And every time we do that, we put ourselves in a place above God. And sometimes what we do is we think, oh, these are just little sins. I love what Thomas Brooks writes. This old Puritan writer says, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Child of God, we're walking in grace. We're walking in freedom in Christ. But that never gives us the license to seek to usurp the authority of God for my own worship. Sin is always the idolatrous worship of ourself. But here's the second thing about sin. All sin is predatorial in nature. It's all predatorial in nature. Sin wants to destroy you. Sin is not your pet, and it will never be your friend. You remember shortly after Adam and Eve sinned, then they had Cain and Abel, two brothers, and they both offered sacrifices to God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain was mad and jealous, and God gives Cain a warning at that point. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here's the picture. Sin is a wild, ravaging animal. It is setting a trap for you, Cain. It's at the door. It is ready to pounce on you when you give it the opportunity. And this sin is going to have its way with you. It wants to eat you and destroy you. That's the concept of sin. I don't know if many of you have read stories about people who have brought pet animals, these, these wild animals into their home and they've tried to domesticate them. Anybody ever read any of these? I, I read these stories all the time. They all turn out the same way. It's very tragic. I was reading about this guy from Florida who had a cougar. He wanted to bring, he, well, he had adopted a cougar when it was a, cougar when it was a cub. And he brought this little cub into his house and he fed it. He played with this little cub. He put a little leash on it. They went walking. He named his cougar cub Fluffy. And so he would take Fluffy everywhere he went. And as Fluffy began to grow, they would wrestle. He would purr on his chest. They would roll around the living room until one night the guy walked into the living room with a big old chunk of meat and he was teasing Fluffy. And Fluffy pounced on him and mauled him to death. He killed him. And I'm thinking, every story I've read like that turns out the same way. These people are like, well, I never saw that coming. Really? 
Fluffy has decades and decades of programming and breeding to be an apex predator. He is not your pet. You can name him Fluffy all you want. It doesn't take the wildness out of him. Besides, he's a cat and you can never trust a cat. So <laughs> you knew that was coming. Some of you have your little pet sins. And you think, oh, this is okay with God because I'm covered by grace. This is just a little pet sin. You know, I'll pet it every now and then. It'll purr with me every now and then. Oh, it'll never turn on me. But all sin wants to destroy. Here's how James writes it. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see what happens? A lot of times believers think, oh, I can just hang on to this little sin. I can put this little one in my pocket. I can carry this one around. You know, this one will just purr. It'll come out when I... No, the desire of every sin is to destroy you. And so Paul is serious about this. Not only is sin the idolatrous worship of yourself and you want to usurp God, but when you're in a place of sin, it is a predator that wants to bring you down. Here's a third thing. Sin desires to be your master. Now we get this straight out of this passage. Sin desires to be your master. Now, the Apostle Paul uses an illustration in this passage of slavery. Now, in the Roman world, slavery was very, very common. Paul was not for slavery. He was against slavery, but it was so common in that area that he uses it as an illustration. It was said in Rome that it's easier to find a slave than it is a free man. Because there were more slaves in Rome. As a matter of fact, a number of the people that Paul is writing to are slaves themselves. So he's a little bit embarrassed, almost apologizes for using the illustration because he says this in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In order for you to fully understand, I'm just going to use an illustration of your culture that you know. And so let's just talk about the issue of slavery. And then here's what he says. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The concept's so simple. The person you obey becomes your master because they ultimately have control over you. And the person that you constantly give your attention your submission, your obedience to is the person who is really the one over you. If I gave my submission to my appetite, then my appetite would become my master. If I go to McDonald's and my appetite says supersize it, I'm going to supersize it. If I go to Wendy's and they said get a biggie fries, I'm going to get a biggie fries. If I'm driving down Market Street and all of a sudden my appetite keeps saying hot donuts, you know where I'm going. But if I'm not a slave of my appetite, then it does not control me. And what the Apostle Paul is painting a picture is here, the thing that you follow and listen to the most is the indication of who your master is. I'm going to quote that really, really important theologian that many of you remember. His name was Bob Dylan. He said many years ago, you got to serve somebody. Now, it might be the devil. It might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And we will. 
Now, one thing we have to understand is the word slave in this context is not just an indentured person who hires themselves out. This is a person who has no rights, no freedoms, no privileges, none at all. This is a person that belongs to someone else. Kenneth Weiss wrote um, um, some points about slavery. This is a great Greek scholar, and here's what he points out. A slave is one who's born in a condition of slavery, one whose will is swallowed up in the will of another, one who is bound in the master, uh, to the master with bonds that only death can break, and one who serves his master to the disregard of his own interest. Every slave does that. In fact, this is who we were before Christ. You put it this way. Go to the next slide. We were born as slaves to sin. Our will was swallowed up and captive to sin within us. Our bondage to sin was so strong that only death, spiritually dying with Jesus on the cross, could break that bondage. We were so enslaved to sin that we served it to the disregard of our own interest, even when sin destroyed us. When we were apart from Christ, that's who we were. Born as slaves of sin, controlled by sin in every aspect because we inherited, remember, from Adam. We have the nature of sin and we choose to sin, therefore we're sinners. And so that's who we are. Now here's the thing. A lot of times we say, no, 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 sin's not my master. That that one little area of my life, I'm in charge of it. It listens to me. And I can manage my sin perfectly well. Matter of fact, I can schedule when I want to do that sin. And sometimes I know the patterns of when that sin's going to come up. And we might think that we're in control of managing our sin, but that is a myth because sin always manages us if we listen to it. Several years ago when I was running one morning around the loop, I put on my shoes, got on the loop road. I'm taking off running, and I feel something in my shoe. It's in my left shoe, and I feel it. It's like a little rock or something, but I don't want to stop and take my shoe off because I've gone too far. Those of you who are runners, you know how it is. You're like, oh, man, i got to untie my shoe. So I'm just running. So the whole time I'm running, I'm moving my toes. I'm trying to take whatever it is in there and just move it just a little bit. If I can manage it out of the way, then I can keep running. And that works for a little while. But then it worked its way into the heel of my foot and then I'm having to move. Then it worked between my toes and it finally got to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. I stopped, I took my shoe off, my sock off and there was a kernel of corn in my shoe. I'd been putting out deer corn for deer hunting, I guess. And, and, but here's the thing, that's the same thing we do with sin. We think we can manage it. Oh, if I could just push it over here, if I can control it right here, if I can do this, but it ultimately finds its way of wanting to be in charge. And here's something we need to remember. Small indiscretions of sin always lead to great falls. They always do. The man who says, I'll never ever cheat on my wife. One small indiscretion, and then there's adultery. The person who says, I'll never steal from the job. One indiscretion, then there's charges and crime. The list can go on and on because it's a myth to think you can manage your sin. So here's the last thing we need to see about it. I like this one. Sin's promises are empty. You can add the word always empty. Sin's promises are empty. Notice how he puts it in verses 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards of righteousness. When we were slaves of sin, we were only free to sin. 
But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you now are ashamed? Were you getting any kind of fruit out of it? No. The things that you were getting out of it in Christ now you are ashamed of. For the end of those things is death. And in verse 23, famous scripture verse, for the wages of sin is death. Sin has wages. And those wages are not just physical death, but there can be a spiritual death or a death of all kind of spiritual growth in our life because of it. And so the thing that we have to realize, it promises great things, but it never delivers the fruit. It never does. Have any of you ever been to a dog race? Raise your hand. You ever been to a dog race? I'm not talking about the dogs in your neighborhood chasing the cat, okay, or the cougar that's gotten loose. But, you know, no. I've never been to a dog race, but I've seen one on television. Remember during COVID when all the sports things were shut down and people were desperate just to watch something? I mean, we were watching cornhole tournaments. That's how bad it got. I was watching a dog race and, and nobody was in the stands, but this dog, there were these greyhound dogs and what they do is they put them in these bins or behind these stalls and the doors are shut and man, they're barking. They're ready to go. They're jumping up and down. They're yipping and yang. They're ready to jump after whatever it is. And all of a sudden, this announcer comes out and he says, here's Rusty. And I'm like, who in the heck is Rusty? Well, out on the rail is a mechanical rabbit that they call Rusty. And he says, here's Rusty. The doors open and all the dogs take off running after Rusty. And Rusty stays just in front of them. They can't catch him. They're running, they're making their way around. And finally, when Rusty gets down to the end, he goes into a hole and then they run across the finish line. That was it. Can you imagine those dogs if they could talk to one another that night? Man, I almost got him that time, man. <laughs> Did you see how close I was? Yeah, but man, I was right on your heel, buddy. I tell you what, I'm getting him next week. And the guy in the back said, I wonder what Rusty will taste like if we ever catch him. Here's the bad thing about dog racing. If a dog ever catches Rusty, his motivation for racing is done. You want to know why? He discovers he ain't real. And here's where dogs are smarter than people. We buy into the lies of sin that this fruit is going to be good and this fruit's going to be good. And so what are we doing? We're chasing after all kinds of rusties. And we're running after this rusty and that rusty. And we might be running after this job and we get to that job. And you know what? It doesn't taste like we thought it was. It must have been the wrong rusty. And so we run for another rusty and for another level and for another position. Or we run after another relationship. Or we run after more material possessions. And we find that none of them satisfies. And instead of being like a dog and just losing the motivation, too many times we just think we're chasing the wrong rusty. And we always are. Let me tell you, that's what sin does. And as a Christian, sin will lie to you to make you think that, you know what, it's okay. This is just one little area of my life. Surely God understands this. Surely God understands that the grace is going to cover me. And so what do we end up doing? We allow occasional sins in our life to rob us of the joy that God has for us. Now, let me say again, Paul is not saying sinless perfection. If any person in anywhere, got on this platform and started telling you you can reach sinless perfection, I would be the first to jerk him or her off this platform. There's no way we can reach sinless perfection. But in our lives, we are called to watch out for sin. It is the idolatrous worship of yourself. 
It is a predator that wants to destroy you. It wants to be your master. And it will lie to you about fruits that will never happen. Sin takes you further than you were planning to go. It keeps you longer than you ever planned to stay. And it costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's the fruit of sin. So what do we do? Paul gives us our way out. How do we view this? What are we to look at when we deal with occasional sin? Here's what Paul tells us. He says, every believer has a new master in Jesus. You have a new master. His name is Jesus Christ. He puts it this way in verses 6, 17, and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You have in Christ, the first time in your life, the freedom to sin or not sin. I'm going to say something very, very bold here. Well, let me read this next verse. Go to the next one. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Here's what I was going to say that's really, really bold. You don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Now, I didn't say you, can, you won't ever sin again. I'm saying you don't have to sin. Why? Justification in Christ has counted you as right. The, pow, the penalty of sin is removed from your life. Sanctification is where you're walking in Jesus for the rest of your days. The power of sin is broken in your life. One day glorification when you're in the presence of God will be the presence of sin is forever gone. But right now, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness. That means we still have to die to ourselves. We have to crucify ourselves, but we can walk in the resurrected life of Christ. Remember the marks of a slave? This is who you are now in Christ. We are born again now as slaves to righteousness. That's why God doesn't mess around with reforming the old. He makes us born again. Our will is now swallowed up in the will of God. It is his will that matters to us, not our own. We are bound to Jesus with bonds that only death can break. But since he has triumphed over death and given us eternal life, those bonds will never be broken in Jesus. We now willingly choose to serve Jesus to the disregard of ourselves. Your new master is Jesus. It's not sin. Have you ever met a person who's been institutionalized? You know what I'm talking about? This is a person who's been put in prison 30, 40, 50 years. All they know is prison. They don't know how to do anything else but prison. And when they get out of prison, they don't know how to live. They don't know how to make decisions. They don't know how to act. Everything they've ever done has been like as a prisoner. And when they get out of prison, they think they're still a prisoner. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are sons and daughters of the king. And we have grace, we have power, we can walk in obedience. So let me give you three ways, three things that we can do to overcome occasional sin in our life. You ready? Number one, submit to your new master. Submit to him. Don't argue with him. 
He's a master. He's your king. He wants the very best for you. When he challenges you in something, it's for your well-being. When he calls you to something, it's for your well-being. When he rebukes you for something, it's for your well-being. He is a master that even if you fail him, he will not reject you. He will love you and lovingly embrace you and give you the grace that you need in the midst of all of this. Submit to him in all things. Secondly, practice the principle of spiritual momentum. What is that? Lawlessness leads to lawlessness. Righteousness leads to righteousness. And spiritual momentum is when you are walking in obedience, the momentum spiritually continues to build. Now, does that mean you won't ever sin? No. You will stumble. You will sin. You will lose your temper. You will get mad at somebody on military cutoff. I didn't say Market Street. But the reality is, even in that, here's what happens. You repent. Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And the next time that happens, I'm aware of this, and I will give you glory and honor and praise. Here's the last one. Live for the end product. What is the end product? It's righteousness. The end product is eternity. Live for eternity. And believer, that means this, that while there will be occasional sins in your life, you have power over those. In the name of Jesus, you have power. And his name is power. His name can shut the demons' mouths. His name can raise the dead. His name is the one who is with you when you're going through some of your most difficult temptations to remember to submit to him and to trust him in all things. Do not settle for occasional sin just simply because you think you get the grace. Put sin to death to honor Jesus and the power of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. And Father, as we saw a few weeks ago, that we are waiting in grace and we never leave grace. And even in our occasional sins, Father, we are covered in your grace, but never let us have a license to commit sin occasionally just simply because we think we deserve your grace. Father, show us the serious nature of sin. Show us the serious power of Jesus' name, that it's in his power. Father, that we have freedom. It's in his power that we have life. It is in his power that we have resurrection. And it's in his power that we will be with you forever. So, Father, we glory today in our Savior, and we glory in the power of his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Until next time.